A week or so ago, I was taking my daughter Savannah to school and we were making our way along 465. I was driving, thankful that I was, because as we were beginning to get off the off-ramp, a white Audi went flying beyond us, behind us at about 80 miles an hour, passed us in the um, sort of median area, and then cut back across, flying. As we were making our way down the ramp, the ramp began to turn, and because of his speed, he overcorrected. He went off the road, came back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and then came underneath an overpass, and the car flipped three times. Right in front of us, we're the, we're the first car. I, along with a couple other guys, came up to the car and began talking with the man. He was in shock. Police officers arrived, and he was remarkably okay. His, his car performed really well on multiple flips. And when I got back in the car, I had this little teaching moment with Savannah to remind her and myself that it only takes a split second and life suddenly can change. One moment you think you're amazing, you're powerful, you're so strong and cool, and the next minute you're being pulled out of a car, lucky to be alive. I had a lot of compassion on that man. Didn't judge him. Because who among us hasn't made a split-second decision because we thought we were awesome only to have really bad consequences? You know, it's a reminder that as human beings, we are very vulnerable, but we often forget the extent of our vulnerability. Our pattern is to trust in the wrong things, in the wrong ways, and to believe that we're invincible. This theme seen in this car crash is the same scene that plays out through all of our humanity. Change it from a car to a career. Change it from a car to a nation. Change it from car to our trust in money. Whatever you want, whatever the emblem is that you think for a moment makes you feel like you're like, God, I can do whatever I want. Like, that comes crashing down. And this is a theme woven through the book of Isaiah. The theme of this glorious book is our God saves. It's a reminder, I can't save myself. I need help. And we've been looking at this middle section called believe that comes after a section where we're invited to turn from our wrong thinking to put our trust in the living God and then we're gonna see what it means to really live. Chapter 40 is where this section began. Just to remind you, this section on believe and it's designed to offer to us comfort and today I'm gonna to offer you some comfort about God's purposes. Here's how that Section began, Isaiah 40 and verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
A voice cries in the wilderness, make way, the, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The idea is God has come, so believe in him. Eventually, this whole section is gonna lead us to who should we really believe in? And you're going to see the, the promise of a future deliverer in Isaiah 53. So this is where this text, this section rather, is heading. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. There it is. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is none other than the person of Jesus. And that's where this text is headed. That's where Isaiah is going. Here we are in Isaiah 46 and 47 with yet another contrast. And the contrast is designed to call us to believe, to believe, to believe again and again and again and again. And the invitation from this text, dear church, is to believe that God's purposes will never fail. His purpose will stand. And the reason that Isaiah communicates this is because the people of God are living in Babylon. He writes to them a prophetic word of how they're going to need to think when their society and culture around them might tempt them to believe that God has forgotten about them or that God's plans aren't good. Because Babylon, in all of its power and its might and its glory, seemed like it was immovable. And yet, Isaiah communicates that there are purposes of God that are not gonna fail. And so he warns these people, he warns us, be careful how you assess the certainty of your life and your institutions and your political systems and your finances and your health. Like, be careful. That stuff may feel solid, but it isn't as solid as it feels to you. So there's two points. One, human purposes fail. Two, God's purposes stand. Now we're gonna look at each of these. I'm gonna invert the order of the text because Isaiah 46 is mostly about God's purposes. Chapter 47 is mostly about human purposes and how they fail. I wanna start with 47 in the first part of 46, and then come back to this point about how God's purposes never fail. So first, human purposes fail. Isaiah wants to set the scene of the futility of the things that we normally place our trust in. And in particular, he highlights the futility of idols, which dominated the culture in which Isaiah lived. And the circumstances of the people of God in their exile might cause them to wonder, hey, is God really as powerful as he claims to be? 
Is God really in control? Because when I look at the landscape of life and I see the power of Babylon and I see this exile and I, I see all the dynamics that are involved here, I'm not sure that God is as powerful as he claims to be. And maybe you've had that question in your mind. The, the key is to understand, again, where we are in the story of God. Isaiah wants us to see ourselves like children to a parent who has to receive particular decisions that the child may not think are for his or her best interest. How many parents deal with this conversation all the time? Honey, it's time to go to bed. That's not fair. You and mom get to stay up. Or if you have lots of children, it gets a little more complicated. So the two of you have to go to bed and the older two can stay up. That's not fair, how come they get to stay up? And then they grow up and the younger kids get older and the older kids go out of the house and then the older kids protest. That's not fair, you never let us have a phone at age 15, right? So it just, it just keeps going, right? It doesn't stop, because why? Because this fairness thing is directly related to our assessment of our perception of reality. That's what idols do. Look at chapter 46, verses one and two. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So we have these two gods, Bel and Nebo. Bel or Baal or Marduk, depending on what name you were to give the god. It's the same god, he's the god of Babylon. And in Babylonian mythology, he was the God who rescued the other gods in the Babylonian creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. He's the God above all gods. And then Nebo was considered the son of Marduk, and he was the God of wisdom and writing. Now, in your mind, before you were like, how silly to have these mythological gods, before you dismiss that as ridiculous, just remember that this God mythology thing was the way the, the people of that day made sense of their entire world. These gods were their attempt to bring order from chaos and to explain what's really happening. They're an attempt to unify the culture, to bring order, and these idols are merely their human attempt to explain the world and control it. And the entire Babylonian culture was based upon this mythology and these functional idols. Mark it down in your mind, idols have a purpose. The purpose of idols is to be able to give us explanation, control, meaning, and identity. So before you think about the people of Babylon as though they're crazy, like they live on another planet, like they're aliens. Let me just ask you a few questions about our present idols. What are the unspoken values in our culture? The things that are just part of the air that we breathe in the West and in particular in the United States and especially within the Midwest. The things that are almost assumed that if somebody were to drop in from another realm they look around and say, it seems like you folks value this by how you act. What gives, maybe a way to sharpen the question is, what gives us a sense of control? What defines our sense of meaning and purpose? What communicates value? 
What are those things that make us go, mm, that's worth living for? And then what are the symbols that give evidence to that, that show us that? Think of an object, a thing, a building, a monument, a structure. If someone were to drop in, they would say, oh, that's, that tells me what's really important. The reason I want you to start thinking that way is idols exist for human purposes. We, we set up idols because of what we want and because of what we think they will give us. Herbert Schlossberg in his book, Idols for Destruction, says this, we don't see our culture, our culture is what we see with. Again, we don't see our culture, our culture is what we see with. Let me just invert that just a bit for Isaiah 46. We don't see our idols, our idols are what we see with. So in 46, two through three, God highlights the irony of these idols. They, they fall down. They have to be carried on beasts and transported. Isaiah is saying something really important about human purposes. He says, you have to carry your own idols. <laughs> you know what that means? That means that we create the very gods that we want to worship and we have to carry our own gods and it's exhausting. You gotta create the idea of your God. You gotta create the actual God. You gotta bow down to that God and then you gotta transport your God. And your whole life is spent trying to create this reality of what it means to try and maintain whatever it is you're trying to maintain in this fictitious worship. Let me make this very practical. Let me just give you an illustration of a car, a house, and clothing. A car can be a car for transportation, but it also can be a symbol and an idol, which is why when someone gets into your really nice car and it's not clean or it looks dirty, you feel a little insecure because it's more, a dirty car can get you from point A to point B, but a dirty car doesn't communicate what you wanted that car to communicate. Or a house, a house is for shelter. Someone's coming over to your house. People are gonna come and you wouldn't want them to see that you live like everybody else. No, the house needs to be really clean. Like let's, let's clean the house so that it looks like it never looks. And so we're busy and stressed and we're sweating and we're arguing and we're mad at each other because we gotta get all this done because God forbid that people would know we live like everybody else. Don't go up in the bedroom. You'll see all our clothes that aren't put away. Or clothing. We need clothing for warmth, for modesty. Nothing wrong with wanting to look sharp and attractive. But we take our clothing and we spend all kinds of money on it. Choose your outfit today and you thought, what's so-and-so gonna think about how I look? And something that could be good can become really bad. That's the idea. We assign purposes to these things. So don't get all judgy with the people of Babylon because of their idolatry. Take a look in your closet. Some of you are here today and you're exhausted. 
You're so tired. And you're not tired because you have just hard circumstances in your life. You're tired because you're having to manage so many of your idols. It's exhausting. And what Isaiah is offering to us here is the freedom of resting in the fact that God's purposes stand and our purposes fail. That's why verse four is so important. Let's begin in verse two. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden. They themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Israel, all the remnant of the house, or the house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your own age. I am he, and to gray hairs. Look what God says. I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. What, what is God saying? He's like, you want to carry idols, or you want me to carry you? Wow. Do you realize how liberating that can be? Look at verse 5. God says, to whom will you liken me, and make my equal, and compare me that we may be alike? And then he gives us a picture of the foolishness of our idolatry, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and then they fall down and worship. Isaiah is saying, do you realize what you're doing? You, you hire somebody to make you a god and then you worship that god not realizing that you made it and hired somebody to create it. Let's skip ahead to chapter 47. That's the highlight of human purposes failing. Chapter 47 is about the whole destruction of the Babylonian culture that is just ripe, ripe with idols. It focuses here on the downfall of Babylon. Now, hopefully you'll remember that Babylon is more than just a city, it's, a, it's an emblem, it's an emblem of the rebellion of mankind, which is why the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, that's where Babylon is based. The Tower of Babel was the place where Humanity gathered and said, let's be together and make a name for ourselves. Let's, big a, let's build a, a tower, a worship center, and make our name amazing, and God scatters the people. It's, it's like a great rebellion, even not comparable to, but it's the second kind of great rebellion that we see in the Garden of Eden. And then in the book of Revelation, when John talks about the waywardness of our culture and how it has fallen, he hears an angel who says, Babylon the great has fallen. He's not talking about the city Babylon. He's talking about the entire human system. So from Genesis to Revelation, the story is not only about God's redemption, but it's also about how Babylon, the human systems of idolatry, have crumbled. So what do we see here? In verses one through four, we see that the glorious city and this nation will be humbled. Verse one, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit in the ground and without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall be no more called tender and delicate. Contrast verse four, our redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the holy one of Israel. In verse five, Babylon loses its authority, it loses its liberty, it loses its status. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. Verses eight through 11, their self-assurance will lead to their demise. Therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasure who sit 
securely who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come to you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt great and secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Wow. So verse 12, their spirituality fails them. So Isaiah says, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wandered about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Wow. This, this book is amazing. The conclusion... There is no one to save you. C.S. Lewis says this, I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. And Lewis says this, the thing just isn't there. The thing just isn't there. That's how you come to Christ, by the way. You come to the conclusion, I have no hope in me, I have no hope in my works, I have no hope in anything. My only hope is Jesus and I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I turn from my sins and I turn to Christ because he alone is my help, he alone is my Savior, he alone is my Redeemer, and it is the singularity of Christ's ability to be our Redeemer that makes the gospel so incredibly glorious and amazingly transformative. And we see the echoes and the hints of this in Isaiah 47. Secondly, God's purposes stand. Now let's go back to chapter 46 because this chapter is filled with amazing good news. He, he dismantles the idols which is designed to lead to a renewed awareness of our need for rescue from the one true God. Again, back to verse four. I will carry you, I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. Verse five. Here's the rhetorical question. To whom will you compare me? Who's at my level is what God is saying. In other words, listen to me carefully. 
Part of the problem with idolatry is that we give things the power that only God should have over us. And I say that to you not to highlight the idol, but rather to highlight the beauty of what God is. Some of us, the problem with our attention to idols is we have a low view of God. We'd rather have a new car. We'd rather be known as attractive. We'd rather feel like we're powerful rather than being known and loved and an identity in who and what Christ is. So one of the things to think about is what is it that you are giving too much power to? Because that's the issue. And the solution to that is to remind us about how powerful and mighty and glorious God is. One commentator says this, the way through a problem is to think about God. If you are afflicted with the malady that I am of massive overthinking at times, can I just remind you that sometimes you need to stop thinking about what you're thinking about. Instead, start thinking about God. Look at what he says in verse eight. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Here's an invitation to remember and rehearse who God is. It, the idea is fix it in your mind. Fix, fix it in your mind. Think about who God is. Remind yourself about who he is. So just so you're aware, in our present day and culture, you had, and I have never had more access to know about more problems in the world than anyone in the history of mankind. And man, it's making us a better people, isn't it? If you had ever thought the thought, I'd love to know everything, well, look how we are faring with knowing more than any other generation. Can I just remind you, it's okay not to know about every problem in the world. Maybe instead of FOMO, for those of you who are over 50, that means fear of missing out, Maybe instead of having this massive FOMA, I'm gonna miss out on what's going on and miss out on this and miss out on this, maybe a badge of honor and maturity, maybe a wise position ought to be, I don't know, and I'm thankful. <laughs> Fix it in your mind. Some of us know far more of what's going on in everyone else's lives than what we really know about what the Bible says of happening in the new heavens and the new earth and what God's plan is for the world and what it is to have a heart and mind meditating on the person and work of Christ. Again, I encourage you, join our New 30 reading program. Spend some time reading the Bible. Turn off your social media. Stop watching the news for a few hours. You're gonna be just fine. In fact, you might be a little happier. He calls them to remember the history of God. He calls them. He says, remember the former things. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. John Newton said this, his love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last. One more time. His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last. And then we come to the signature text. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, 
from ancient times, things not yet done. This text tells us that God is incomparable. There's no one like him. His purposes stand because his purposes are tied to who he is. I make you a promise. It's conditioned on my ability to keep a promise and my ability to keep my word and my ability to not game you to think that I'm gonna keep it, but I'm not. But that's always going to be a thought because I could, because I'm human and I'm sinful. God can't do that. So when he promises based upon himself, it is more sure than you and I can possibly imagine. He's incomparable. Verse 10, he's absolutely in control, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, meaning God doesn't see things in order. He sees the whole. It's not that the future is coming. In the mind of God, the future is done. It's not that the past was something to fulfill his promises and to show how trustworthy he is. It is that the past gives us evidence that God is in control and will always be in control so the people of God can rest knowing that God's got it. He's in control. Verse 11, calling, or rather the second part of verse 10, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Even the bad things, calling a bird of prey from the east. Notice that. The man of my counsel from a far country. I'm going to use a a powerful, wicked ruler named Cyrus who's going to be my puppet. Stop freaking out. I got the strings. He may be moving, but I'm the puppet master. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Notice, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. Some of you are here today and you need to hear this text because you need to be reminded of what you already know and that is not only that you're in control, but you need to be reminded that you can trust the God who is. Some of you are here today, you're not yet a Christian and God has used the hard circumstances of your life to awaken some really important questions. And friend, I'm so glad that you're asking those questions and the invitation today would be, there is no other who can save you because no one else was God and man. No one else died on the cross. Nobody else paid atonement for sins. You can't level the scales of God's justice by doing all sorts of good things. You'll never be able to do that, it's exhausting. The way to come to faith is to give up on trying to do you so, do, so well and instead come to Christ and say, I can't do this. I need you to take over. And Jesus says, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? And come to me. And if you wonder, ever, can God use hard circumstances in order to accomplish his will? Can he use wickedness and evil? Can he use diabolical schemes? Can he use things that seem to be absolutely crazy hard? Listen to a little part of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two when he said this to a crowd of people, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Even the crucifixion of Jesus was planned and was part 
of the purpose and counsel of God. So when your heart is so filled with anxiety and worry, when your heart is so filled with, God, I don't know what's going on, can I encourage you to take a walk back and take a look at the old rugged cross. Take a look at the place where it looked as though evil had won and be reminded that God has an amazing way of flipping the script. So what do we do with this text? Three very quick applications. Number one, oh church, be idol aware. We don't see our idols, but our idols are what we see with. Two, be truth rehearsing. Not only idol aware, but be truth rehearsing. Remind yourself over and over and over and over of the truth of God's word. Saturate your mind and heart with the truth of what God is and who he is and what he has done. Be idle aware, be truth rehearsing. Third, be other encouraging. Remind each other. When we're weak, help remind one another. God's purposes will stand. We don't know what or how or why or when. But dear friend, we know who. And when we know who, we're gonna be okay. My wife and I have a little tradition every morning. As often as we can, we have something we call coffee time, which is a verbal cue for our dog to jump up and sit on the couch next to us, on the one couch that she's allowed to be on. And at our little coffee time, we just talk about the day. What do you have going on today? How you feeling? Just a little check-in. And on one of our little coffee time moments, I was sharing with my wife some burdens, challenges, some fears. And my wife has an uncanny ability to cut through everything and just say it just like I need it, which is why she's such a gift to me. She tolerates my relentless verbal processing, my fretting, my worrying, my crazy ideas. So thankful. And she said this to me. Mark, God's going to help you. He has to. He has to. I got up from where I was sitting and I looked out the window and I thought, that's so true. God not only is going to help me, he has to help me because he promised that he would help me, that his purposes will stand. Church, listen to me. God's going to help you. He has to. Thank you, Jesus, that you are ready and willing to be able to provide the grace that we need right on time when we need it. And I would imagine, Lord, there's some in this room and some watching online who need to be reminded that you are going to help them. You have to because your purposes will stand. And so, oh, now, Lord, grant us grace, we pray, to believe that truth that you might live in and through us 
so we could faithfully follow you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.